John chapter 4, verses 31 through 54. Verses 31 through 34. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat which ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Burkett notes, Observe here the fit and seasonable motion which our Savior's disciples make to him. Master, eat. Learn from thence that though a person's chief care should be for his own soul and for improving all opportunities of doing good to the souls of others, yet the bodies of men must not be neglected, but supported by meat and drink, especially theirs whose health and strength may be of greater use and service to God and his church. The body is the servant of the soul, the instrument whereby it worketh, and therefore to neglect the body is to disable and unfit the soul for service, to hinder the function and operations of it. The sixth commandment, which forbids us to kill, requires us to use all means for the preservation of life, both in ourselves and others. Observe next our Savior's answer to the disciples' motion. Master, eat, they say. I have meat to eat that ye know not of, says he, for my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Not that our Savior did not want meat at this time, for he was both hungry and thirsty, as appears by his asking water of the woman to drink, and by his sending his disciples into the city to buy meat. But our Lord was more intent upon doing his Father's work than upon satisfying his own hunger. Christ hungered more after an opportunity of doing good to the souls of men than he did after meat and drink to satisfy his hunger. Lord, let us, thy ministers, learn of thee to prefer the spiritual welfare of our people before any temporal advantages whatsoever. Verses 35 through 38. Say ye not, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And therein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereupon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having in the former verses given a most plain and evident demonstration of his fervent desire to bring souls home to God, doth in these verses labor to stir up and kindle the like affection in his disciples. And this he doth by three very effectual arguments. The first argument is drawn from the ripeness of the people and their willingness to hear and their readiness to be reaped and gathered by the gospel, whereof there was a present instance in the Samaritans who were now coming forth in multitudes to Christ, which opportunity was therefore to be improved. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already for harvest. Learn hence that as a people is sometimes ripe for the ministry of the word, as corn is ripe and ready for the reaper's hand, so it is the duty of the ministers of Christ to lay hold upon such opportunities with as much desire and delight as the harvest men do upon a reaping season. The second argument to stir up the disciples' diligence in preaching the gospel is drawn from the great reward they should receive for this their work. He that reapeth receiveth wages. The harvest man's wages is double to what other laborers receive. The ministers of God shall receive good wages at his hand. 
how ill soever are requited and rewarded by an unkind world. As a further encouragement it follows, he that soweth and he that reapeth shall rejoice together. That is, the prophets who took so much pains in sowing the seed of the gospel, and particularly John the Baptist, and you, my apostles, which succeed them, and reap the fruit of what they did sow, shall have the same reward and glory and rejoice together. Learn hence that not only the successful, but the faithful laborer in God's harvest shall be rewarded. Not only those which see the fruits of their ministry in the conversion of sinners, but such as are faithful seedsmen. Though the seed does not come up till we are in our graves, nay, though it rot under the clods, and does not come up at all, yet shall the faithful seedsman be rewarded according to his labor, not according to his success. The third argument to quicken the disciples' diligence is drawn from the easiness and facility of that labor which God required of them. Others have labored, and ye are entered into their labors. That is, the prophets and John the Baptist have prepared the ground and sown the seed and made ready a people for the Lord. And now you enter into their labors, performing and gathering them into the gospel church. Yet this must not be understood absolutely, but comparatively, not as if the prophets reaped nothing, converted none, but that their fruit was small in comparison of the success which the apostles found. Nor is it to be understood as if the apostles took no pains at all, but that the prophets' greater pains render the apostles' labor successful, who took less pains. Learn hence that the wisdom of God sees it fit that all his servants in the work of the ministry do not meet with the same difficulties nor enjoy the same success. Some are laborious sowers, others are joyful reapers. Some labor all their days with little visible success, others bring in many to Christ, perhaps by a single sermon. Some labor even with weariness and reap little, others enter their labors and reap much. Verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Burkett notes, Here an account is given of the conversion of more of the Samaritans from the city of Sichar. Some believed on him, upon the full report which the woman had made, that he had told her all things that ever she did. But others were brought to believe by his own word. Now from the woman's beginning as an instrument to bring her acquaintances to Christ by her own experience of what she had heard from him, learn, one, that very weak instruments, when they are employed themselves for Christ, desiring to extol his praise and set forth his glory, are sometimes richly blessed with great success. Many of the Samaritans believed for the saying of this poor woman. Learn, too, when a person can say but little of Christ, yet if it be spoken from experience and a sensible feeling, it will be more successful and persuasive than much more that is spoken from notional knowledge. Such was this woman's testimony concerning Christ. Come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She spoke what she found, yea, what she felt within her, and speaking her own experience, many believed on him for her saying. But farther, these Samaritans believed Christ to be a prophet upon the testimony of this woman, but they believed him afterwards to be the Messiah or the Savior of the world 
upon the credit and authority of his own word. Verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. Bent learned that although instrument speaking may be a mean to draw persons to give some assent to truth, yet it is Christ himself that must work a full persuasion, and his own word is the surest foundation for faith to build and depend upon. Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. Verses 43 through 45. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having spent two days with the Samaritans as an introduction to the calling of the Gentiles, he goes forward towards Galilee, the place which he was pleased to make choice of for the exercise of the greatest part of his ministry. Coming into Galilee, he passed by the city of Nazareth, where he had had his education, knowing what little respect he was like to find there, a prophet ordinarily having little honor in his own country. Therefore, shunning Nazareth, he goeth to Cana, where he had done his first miracle. Learn hence, one, that there is a very real tribute of honor due to every prophet and minister of God, which ought to be testified by reverence to their persons, by a due estimation of the dignity of their calling, by obedience to their doctrine, and by an honorable maintenance. A prophet should have honor, and honor includes all these. Learn, too, it is very usual and ordinary for the prophets of God to meet with least respect where they are most known. Their nearest neighbors, their nearest relations, their nearest acquaintance are oftentimes further off from giving them that honor that is due unto them. Learn, three, that the true prophets and messengers of God shall be sure to find some that will entertain their persons and embrace their ministry, though they be disesteemed and rejected by others. Though our Savior had no honor at Nazareth, yet he found entertainment amongst the rest of the Galileans. Verses 46 through 54. So Jesus came again into Canaan of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him, and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired him of them the hour when he had begun to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth and he himself believed, and his whole house. This is, again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Burkett notes, In this last paragraph of the chapter, we find our blessed Savior performing a second miracle in Cana of Galilee, curing a nobleman's son that was sick of a fever. This nobleman apprehended Christ to be a prophet, and believed that if he were a prophet, and believed that if he were bodily present with his son, he might possibly cure him. But he did not believe him to be the Messiah, who was true God and everywhere present. 
Therefore, to give him an infallible proof that he was so, he tells him his son was cured by the word of his mouth, even at that distance. By which miracle he cured not only the child of the fever, but the father of his unbelief. From the whole we note one, the person that here applies himself to Christ, a nobleman. We do not find Christ oft attended with nobility. Have any of the rulers believed on him? Yes, here is one. The sovereign grace of God is free, and he has his numbers among all orders, ranks, and degree of men. And though not many noble are called, yet some are. Note 2. The calamity which befell this noble person. His son was sick, yea, dying. Earthly greatness is no defense against afflictions. Great men are as in trouble as other men. Neither the wealth and riches of this nobleman, nor his power and authority, nor his honor in his country, nor his favor with his prince, could keep off God's hand, either from himself or from his son. But the father feels as much by sympathy as the child by sense. Note 3. The cause and special occasion which brought this nobleman to Christ. It was in general an affliction, and in particular the sickness of his child. Learn hence that great is the fruit and profit of afflictions to the children of men. Many, with this nobleman, never come to Christ till they be driven by the cross. And particularly, God sanctifies the sickness and death of the near and dear relations, children and special, to bring persons nearer to himself. Note 4. This nobleman was neither faithless nor faithful. Had he been quite faithless, he had not taken such pains to come to Christ. Had he been faithful, he had not limited the Son of God by saying, Come down and heal my son, ere he die. Come down, as if Christ could not have cured him absent. Ere my son die, as if the same power required to him being sick could not raise him being dead. Lord, heal my son, had been a proper suit to him who was the great physician. But come down and heal him was to teach Christ how to work. He who doth whatsoever he will must do it how he will and when he will. It is for us to crave and receive, not to prescribe and appoint. Note 5. The meekness and great condescending goodness of Jesus Christ. Notwithstanding the infirmity of this poor man, our Lord says, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Worthiness in the creature is not the motive that rules Christ. Should we measure our hopes by our worthiness, there would be no blessing to be hoped for. But if we measure them by Christ's bounty and compassion, there is no blessing to be despaired of. Note 6. How Christ not only answers the desires, but exceeds the expectations of this distressed person. His request was only, Come and heal my son. Christ's answer was, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Our Heavenly Father, when he doth not give us what we ask, gives us better than we asked. We ask for what we think best, but God gives us what he knows to be best. Christ here gave a greater demonstration of his omnipotence than was craved. Note lastly, with one word doth Christ heal two patients, the son of his fever, the father of his unbelief. It was a low degree of faith that brought the father to Christ. It was a higher degree that sent him back to his son. But highest all, when finding his son healed, he himself believed and his whole house. Learn hence that a weak faith may be true, but a true faith is always growing and increasing. It is like the path of the just that shineth more and more until the perfect day.